Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of EdChoice Chats. Thanks for spending some of your time with us today. This is Marty Lucan, the Director of the Fiscal Research and Education Center here at EdChoice. And we have a special podcast today, particularly for those of you who are fascinated by the world of school finance. So today I'm joined by Dr. James Scholz and Aaron Smith. James is an associate professor and the graduate program director of educational leadership and policy studies at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And he's also one of our fellows here at EdChoice. Aaron is the director of education policy at the Reason Foundation. Aaron and James have both done extensive work in the area of education finance. So they are truly experts in their own right. It's a pleasure to have both of you on the program today. Hey, it's great to be with you, Marty. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So the topic of this episode is funding protections for public schools. Now, EdChoice released a couple of reports recently about funding protections. The first report is one that I co-authored with you, James. It's basically a primer on these policies, and it discusses their trade-offs. And then the second paper is a policy scan, which summarizes funding protections across all the states. So first, let me just start off by setting the table here by just describing for our listeners what we mean by funding protections. So all of this applies to public schools. And some of these laws, they also include charter schools, but usually they do not. So what we mean by funding protections are that these are provisions in state funding systems that are aimed at softening the impact of funding reductions that usually occur from declines in student enrollment. There are usually two main types of funding protections that nerds like us talk about. One is declining enrollment protections, and the other is funding guarantees, which are sometimes referred to as hold harmless provisions by some people. Now, just a note on the parlance here. So to be clear, some folks use the term hold harmless to refer to all forms of funding protections, but James, in our paper, we use the term to refer to a specific form of funding protection, namely funding guarantees. Now, the two types, declining enrollment protections are meant to help districts cope with enrollment reductions by basically softening the impact on the district's budget. So for example, a state might base funding on enrollment during, say, the previous three years or the current year, and the district would use the count that generates the greater amount of revenue for them. And then funding guarantees, they guarantee that a district is going to receive some minimal level of funding. For example, a state might guarantee you know, that funding won't go below the level of funding the district's received in some prior year. Sometimes that might be a year when, say, the state enacted a new funding law. So now that the table is set, gentlemen, why, why should we care about these policies in the first place, and who should care about them? I'm actually going to start from the conclusion of our paper. We quote some wise authors. It's actually, we quote a paper that you and I wrote before, where we say, Equity, efficiency, and educational opportunity are three guiding principles that state lawmakers should consider as they develop or change state funding systems in order to pursue ideal education finance systems. So we're saying 
equity, efficiency, educational opportunity. These are things state policymakers should be concerned with and hold harmless provisions and these funding protections that we're talking about here run afoul on all three grounds. And we can talk about them more, but they're contrary to equity. They're contrary to efficiency. They're contrary to ensuring educational opportunity and school choice for every student. And so who should care about these? I mean, taxpayers should care about these. State lawmakers should care about these, but also individuals who are concerned or interested in advancing educational opportunity should be concerned about how their state is funding schools and how many of these different sort of provisions are in their state funding formulas. Well, those are all great points and really good insights. Aaron, you've done some work in this area as well. Who should care about these policies, do you think? Yeah, well, James mentioned a couple. So obviously, taxpayers should care. Hold harmless provisions in many instances are costly, and they result in students being double-funded. And oftentimes, districts that are already high-spending, higher wealth, get money from these provisions. And that tends to work against the entire purpose of state funding formulas, which seek to equalize local education dollars. So in a sense, they not only counteract the purpose of state funding formulas, but they also waste taxpayer dollars. School choice advocates should also care. So when dollars don't follow students, this could have a couple of effects. So the first, it could decrease the share of funds that follow students to their school choice programs, such as ESAs. And as I mentioned before, it could make school choice costlier. If you're double counting students and you're double funding students and you have a school choice program, that could increase the bill for it. And lastly, but certainly not least, kids and teachers should care about hold harmless provisions, right? So the effects of these provisions are not always seen. There's not always a lot of transparency around them. But you know, the result is that dollars aren't allocated to public schools in a fair and efficient manner. And the effect is that you don't have as many dollars to actually put into your funding formula to allocate based on student needs or to just put into a base allotment that all districts can benefit from. And along these lines, when you have hold harmless provisions, specifically declining enrollment provisions, schools don't really have much of an incentive to improve. So the competitive effects of losing students, losing funding are diminished and they have no reason to innovate. That's great. So this eventually all comes back to students. These are things that affect students and some of my view adverse ways. But I want to get to also at why states have these policies in the first place, or if there are any reasons why they should have them or would have them. So James in the Primer report, which to our listeners, you can find these two reports on our website at edchoice.org. We don't see these kinds of arrangements elsewhere in the economy, do we? We don't see them in the higher education, I don't think, or with hospitals and clinics or law firms where you know these entities and firms are getting dollars for customers that they may no longer serve, right? Or what have you. But why do we see these in public K-12? I mean, what are the upsides, if any, here? Well, I can't speak to all those other areas because I don't know for sure. I haven't studied those, but I could tell you what's going on in education. And you have to separate out these two types of provisions, as you did in the intro, to sort of understand why they're there. The declining enrollment provision is based on the idea that we want to protect the local school districts when they have this sort of downturn. 
There are fixed costs in education. There are some things that we can't cut immediately if the school district receives less funds. And so by creating a declining enrollment provision, we allow some stability and they don't have to respond right away when the reduction in students happens. It can come down the road, right? So they need to release staff or lay off teachers, decrease their teacher workforce, whatever it is. It allows for a longer time period for that to happen. So it's just a mechanism that provides stability for the school district. So those are the reasons which you might do it. Of course, what we highlight is that that also leads you to the case where you're decreasing market pressure on school districts. The school districts don't feel the need to respond quite the same. And it also leads to this idea of funding ghost students, right? We're paying twice for students who are once a student has gone somewhere else, we're paying for them there, but we're also paying for them in their previous district. So that's the declining enrollment provision. Now, hold harmless, the traditional sort of hold harmless or funding guarantees is slightly different. The reason that we have those provisions, in my estimation, is more of a political calculation. It's funding formulas are determined by state legislatures, and there's horse trading going on. And you have state policymakers who are trying to watch out for the interests of their local school districts. And so when they put in place a new funding formula, and that funding formula may reduce funds at their local school district, these policymakers, they argue for a hold harmless provision so that their schools aren't affected, so that they're not impacted by the new funding formula. So that's when these things are oftentimes put in place. It's really to try to sell the new funding formula to state policymakers. The problem is these things typically become permanent. They don't go away, right? They put them in place and they could be a transitory or for a transition period, but they're often not. And so we have a situation where school districts are essentially held harmless in perpetuity. They could be guaranteed to receive the same dollar amount per pupil, or they could be guaranteed to receive the same total dollar amount from the state. States structure this in different ways. And that can be quite harmful when you do it that way, especially in terms of equity and in terms of the allocation of state dollars. So there are reasons that we put these things into place, but oftentimes we see that they become permanent and they distort the school finance system. That's a great explanation. Thanks. And Aaron, you mentioned a few of the trade-offs of the downsides to having these, for example, these policies dampen incentives for districts to improve because they continue to receive funding. Not that the dollars are not following the students; they're they're not experiencing a loss or you know as big of a loss, you know, as in a world without these policies. You mentioned the impact on taxpayers, and you know, and this makes sense because states they have budget constraints, and with budget constraints, you know, trade offs are inherent in policymaking. But are there any other downsides? to these funding protection policies. You also mentioned, James, in the beginning, some issues with equity as well. How's that mechanized and how's that work out? Yeah, so I think we hit on the big ones. And I think the biggest is there's just a large opportunity cost with these hold harmless provisions, especially now in a post-COVID-19 world where school districts have lost a lot of students and they haven't been forced to adapt. These dollars are being diverted to school districts that aren't serving as many students, and those dollars could be following students to their actual school. So I think that's the biggest one, and you know, it's just the opportunity cost of these provisions. But 
What I haven't mentioned yet is that they're also opaque. So it's often unclear how much they cost. It's unclear how these dollars are distributed and who benefits and who doesn't benefit. And so as a result, you know, state policymakers can easily assess their effectiveness or whether these resources could actually be put to better use. And this is true across states. You know, if you ask most state lawmakers in states with a declining enrollment provision, how much schools would be receiving if they use current year counts instead of prior year counts, I'm willing to bet that most would not have an answer to that question. In fact, most policy wonks don't know. But the other thing I'd mention is, is that, you know, I think all of the benefits, the advantages that James pointed out, you know, those are good arguments. But what we also see across states is that there are many states that already use current year counts. You know, Texas stands out as a state that funds school districts based on who's currently enrolled in their buildings. They have 1,100 school districts statewide, many rural school districts, and those districts are doing just fine with their budgets and with their planning in that current system. There's also a bit of a hypocrisy to it too, right? You look to California, which has a very generous declining enrollment provision. It's essentially a three-year provision, a three-year look back that funds districts based on prior enrollment counts if they're higher. The thing here is that charter schools aren't actually eligible for this declining enrollment provision. So while school districts are funded based on their sort of their high water level mark in the past couple few years, charters are receiving funding based on their current year student counts. So if charters can do it, if 1,100 plus school districts in Texas can do it, then I'm confident that every school district in America can do this as well. Now, these are all really good considerations for our listeners and our audience and for policymakers as well to be aware about these funding protections. Now, let's take a look at some of the specific policies. So the second report that we released is kind of a state policy scan of funding protections across all 50 states. And for those who really want to dig into the weeds and nerd out, we have a companion state profile appendix, which lays out all the details for each state. But overall, we found that there are 34 states providing districts with declining enrollment protections, with funding guarantees, or with both. And also, there have been 27 states that actually enacted additional protections, temporary provisions during the COVID pandemic, which was aimed at mitigating you know, funding losses that were largely occurring from enrollment decline from the pandemic. So let me just highlight a few, how a few states protect funding for public schools for our listeners. So Ohio, which recently expanded its choice programs to be universal. Ohio has a declining enrollment provision where it bases funding on greater of I think the previous fiscal year or the average student count from the three previous years. And this type of structure is one of the more common policies that we see among the states that have declining enrollment provisions. Now, Colorado has an interesting provision for declining enrollment where it bases funding on the current year of enrollment or the greater of the average enrollment from the prior two years, uh, the prior three-year average, four-year average, or five-year average. Iowa, which is another state that introduced the universal ESA program, 
has a funding guarantee where districts that experience any kind of enrollment decline, they'll receive 101% of the funding that they received during the previous year. So the state basically is giving districts one year to adjust plus some extra funding, which is an additional 1% to help them adjust. In other words, this policy is kind of postponing the effects of the decline in enrollment on the district's budget for just one year. So unlike many others, it's not perpetual. But an example of a state that does have perpetual hold harmless is Pennsylvania. Districts there are guaranteed the same amount of state funds that they received in 2014, regardless of what their enrollment is now. So James and Aaron, you know, I just want to see what your thoughts are about these flavors of funding protections. And also, you know, I mentioned a few of these states, they have choice programs. And we touched on it earlier before, but in the context of a school choice environment, particularly a rich school choice environment, where we're starting to see more and more states pass universal or very broad eligibility programs. So in the context of school choice, where the states allow the public funds to follow the child to you know, whatever educational setting that their families are choosing. What implications do these policies have on taxpayers in school districts or for students? And what implications do they have for passing or expanding choice policies in states you know, that don't have them or might have them want to expand them? I was thinking about this as you were talking in terms of the sort of political divide, the sort of Democrats versus Republicans or conservative versus liberal, or you know, who would be interested in this sort of policy? Who would be interested in hold harmless provisions? And really, as you were describing those circumstances and the policies in different states, I was thinking to myself, everyone should. Everyone should care for one reason or another We've used the word in this conversation, distort, that the sorts of provisions distort the school funding system. And what we mean by that is that they put dollars in one place when they should be or could be used in another place. They allow for a school district to get dollars for students they're not educating. Those dollars, if you're on the conservative side, well, maybe we could save those dollars, they could be returned to the taxpayers. Or if you're more on the progressive side, Maybe those could be used in a more progressive manner in the formula somewhere else. So we're using dollars, we're giving money to schools for students they're not educating, or especially in the case of the hold harmless, traditional hold harmless provisions, we're giving dollars to schools that may be more affluent and wouldn't deserve those dollars based on the funding formula, but we've guaranteed them those dollars. So what we're talking about is you're putting money into the system in a way that basically no one would want except for the local school district administrators, right? The local school district administrators who benefit from these, of course, would absolutely want these. But what we're not saying is this is just a way to get more money and we want to cut funding. That's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is the way that we're choosing to spend these dollars is distortionary and we could find better ways to do it. We could find ways that would follow the student and would allow more market pressure we could do it in ways that would be more equitable, right? There are all sorts of ways we could do this better, but the ways that we're doing it when we have these sorts of systems basically benefits places that don't necessarily need those dollars. 
Yeah, those are all really great points, James. I completely agree. And, you know, as I mentioned before, there's a big opportunity cost with these whole harmless provisions. And realistically, no one's going to cut funding. These dollars aren't going to disappear. But the whole point is to put them back into the funding formula and allow lawmakers to use their funding formulas in a strategic way that benefits students, that targets dollars to students based upon their needs and based upon where they're actually going to school or their education service provider. And I'll say, you know, to be straight, I'm generally against hold harmless provisions. You can call me a, a hold harmless hawk, if you will. But, but yeah, that doesn't mean they can never be used effectively, right? So as James was and you, Marty, were going through the, the benefits and how states use them to enact funding formula changes, you know, I would never say not to use them if you have the opportunity to remake your funding formula and to enact a pretty big reform that's going to benefit students in your education system. Because, you know, realistically, they do help to grease the wheels of reform. And if you're going to get a big payoff in the terms of a better funding formula or more school choice, then in my estimation, the payoff is generally worth it. I'm very pragmatic in that sense. But at the same time, you have to make sure that that hold harmless provision disappears. So we look at a lot of states, James, your home state of Missouri, Marty, I think you might have lived in Missouri at some point too. You look at their funding system and districts are still receiving dollars based on what they got in 2006, right? We're pushing on two decades now. And, you know, there's a bunch of school districts receiving funding based on their 2006 levels. And that's just ridiculous, right? I think any reasonable person can agree that that shouldn't be the case. I think the problem is, is that these provisions are sticky. There's not much political benefit for a legislator to attack them or to take these dollars away. And, you know, sometimes you have to wait until you get more funding in order to take them away. You know, Texas is a good example of that, right? They had something called the cost of education index for many years, for 20 or 30 years. And this wasn't initially a hold harmless, but it turned into one based upon how it functioned. Long story short, it funded school districts based upon their demographic data from 1989. So, you know, in 2015, 2016, a billion dollars was being allocated based on data from the 80s. But in order to get rid of that, the state had to dump a lot of money into their system. And as part of their big overhaul in, in 2019, they managed to get rid of it. So all districts were made whole, they got more money, and they were able to eliminate that provision. But that just illustrates just how sticky these things are. And, you know, it, once you have them in law, no matter how noble it was or how good it was, they're very difficult to get rid of. You know, I was thinking too, Aaron, about the interplay between districts that it causes within a state when some get the additional dollars based on the hold harmless provision and others don't. It creates this sort of system where the school district's interests aren't aligned in terms of thinking about reform, and especially when you have a hold harmless provision like you talked about Missouri, where it is often the case that more affluent school districts tend to benefit from the hold harmless provision. And so if you're starting to talk about reforming the system, you then have some districts who think of themselves as haves versus have-nots and benefit differently from reforming the system. And so the longer those things are left in place, the more harmful those divisions can be and the tougher it can be to make those sort of changes that you were just talking about. Right. And I mentioned, you know, how whole harmless provisions tend to be opaque, but I'll tell you, if you're going to go after them, districts will know exactly how much money they stand to lose if legislators vote in favor of eliminating those whole harmless provisions. Absolutely. 
No, thanks. These are really fantastic thoughts and insights. And Aaron, thanks for bringing in Missouri. I grew up there. So yeah, I've been there a few times. But before we wrap up, I do want to tease something that Aaron, that you and your team and mine has been working on together. And that is that we'll soon be releasing a fiscal effects calculator. So for our listeners, this is basically a tool that will allow you to design an ESA program for your state or for any other state you know that you might be interested in. And what it does is that it'll display the overall fiscal effect for taxpayers in that state. And this tool will basically allow users to toggle various program parameters and assumptions about funding and participation. So just want everyone to kind of be on the lookout for that. That's something I think is exciting that's on the horizon. And James and Aaron, I, I really appreciate our partnership that EdChoice has with each of you and Aaron with reason. Now, Aaron, you and I, we have also talked before about some of the work that your team is doing on funding protections. And I just want to make sure that you get an opportunity to tell our listeners about what you're doing, what you're working on, because I think they'll be interested to learn about it. Yeah, thanks, Marty. Yeah, so we're publishing a paper early next year that puts hold harmless policies in context. And so we evaluate the extent to which they use education dollars effectively across three states. So California, Missouri, and Oklahoma. And, you know, a couple key takeaways. One is that declining enrollment provisions can be quite costly, but obviously policy design in state context is pretty important. And what stood out there is that California in 2023 had about 400,000 ghost students. So these are students who weren't enrolled in public schools that public schools were still receiving money for. And that cost the state roughly $4 billion. And for context, that's about 7 or 8% of total state formula aid. So definitely not a small chunk of change. A lot of dollars are being distributed outside of the state's local control funding formula. For Missouri, that was, you know, we estimate that their declining enrollment provision cost them just under $200 million in 2022. And depending upon what you use as the denominator, that's a roughly 5% of the state's formula aid. But the other big takeaway is that there really wasn't a strong relationship between hold harmless funding, so declining enrollment funding, and student poverty. So one argument might be, well, a lot of these districts that are losing students have high concentrations of student poverty, and in, in many instances, that's true, right? You look at LA Unified, um, they're losing a ton of students. They receive a lot of declining enrollment funding. But when you step back in the aggregate and you look at the data, there isn't a strong connection. And as we mentioned before, there are many examples of low poverty districts, low need districts that are receiving large amounts of declining enrollment funding or large amounts of funding guarantees that they otherwise wouldn't receive. That's great. Really excited to see your report when it comes out. Well, gentlemen, thank you again for being on our podcast today. Really appreciate it. And always great to chat with you. Thank you, Marty. So everyone who is listening, you can go to edchoice.org to access the funding protections reports that EdChoice has released. And if you have feedback on any of our work, always feel free to reach out. But just want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you again next time on the next edition of EdChoice Chats.